0: So again, we're in our final week of a message series addressing several what-if questions. Um, and as we, we, we found out, as we're going through week by week, each affirmative response each week kind of leads to a, well, then what about this question, right? What if, if this is true, well, what if? Um, and, and again, it's kind of been a domino kind of effect. And so far, here's how the dominoes have fallen, um, what if God does want us happy, right? What if happiness is a gift from God, like the secret ingredient uh, to Christianity, right? It's that, it's, that, it's that, like my wife fixed this uh, incredible uh, beef and noodles d- dish, and she found this, this spice, and we don't really know what it is, but she puts it in there, and it just, it changed the whole dish. It was like it made it amazing, and I have a feeling that, that joy and happiness is that secret ingredient, and, and again, what if there's more than enough, right? We discovered that God has more than enough for us to be ridiculous generous, right? In the way that we show and act and and tell about the kingdom. And, And what if, what if persons of peace were simply waiting for somebody to show up and act like the kingdom is in them, right? And then to show them the kingdom in action and explain how it works. Would that be amazing? And what if, what if God could make it possible to actually fulfill our desire to love him and to love our neighbors more than we love the rest of the world. That's a tall order. We, we, we fight that. It's called original sin. And, and God's word says that he will, he will just remove that. He will just remove that. You'll still have to deal with personal sin, but he'll remove that desire to please ourselves, and he'll replace it with a desire to love him and to love our neighbor. Right? That's a promise from scripture and that's leaned into that last week big time. And today, what if Richland Church of the Nazarene is his plan? What if Richland Church of the Nazarene is his plan to proclaim good news to the poor of Richland, Washington? To proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind of Richland, Washington. What if Richland Church of the Nazarene is his plan to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to Richland Washington. I mean, what would it take? Really, we're, we're, we're looking at this question. What would it take to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Was- Richland? To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I mean, what, what would it take? And would we be up to this task so my question kind of this morning is what if Richland Church of the Nazarene is part of God's plan to first bless Richland, Washington, right? From the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, right? And then to use Richland Church of the Nazarene to train up an army of blessed ambassadors of the kingdom, right? And then, and then to send, to see Richland Church of the Nazarene send these blessed ambassadors out to bless. More people, right? More people by, by acting like the kingdom is in them, by showing them the kingdom, and by explaining the kingdom. There's a church in Gwinnett County, Georgia. They thought this might be their calling, right? Um, in their context, this is kind of what it looked like. This is not our context. See, they're a huge church. They have half a dozen campuses across uh, Georgia, around the Atlanta area, in Gwinnett County, um, a very huge church. Um, But it's people were particularly hard hit by the economic crisis of 2008, right? We, We remember that record setting foreclosures, business setbacks, high unemployment, right? Can you say deja vu right now, right? We're experiencing all these exact same things. And one day their pastor, they felt a, he says he felt a strong prompting from God to do something about the situation. And it was strangely specific, he felt very strongly that God... Now, he, he had, he, when he writes this, he, he says, I didn't like to hear a voice, he just a strong, strong, persuasive feeling by God's Spirit that this is what he needs to do specifically. Lead your church to feed 5,000 families in your community. Go outside your church and give them Christmas dinner and two weeks' groceries. Now, even as he wrote it down in his journal, the pastor's, like, quietly thinking you know, Christmas dinner to 5,000 families, right? He's thinking, well, first of all, it's going to cost over a million dollars. They didn't have that money. They, let, they, they didn't have the necessary contacts and organization. You know, how do we get the right food to the right people? Hit that next slide there, advance at one. Um, not enough time, not enough parking, not enough anything to make this happen. And and he says, literally, my mind was melting as I thought about all the logistics that we simply did not have. I mean, we're a big church, but this was something so much far past that. So my first reaction was to try to dismiss the whole thing because it really was impossible. Not more than 24 hours later, a very close friend of him handed him a note. And on the piece of paper, it was really a devotional that was torn out of a book. And it was a devotional by a guy named um, Henry Blackaby. He wrote a book called Experiencing God. Uh, He might have wrote some other things, but that's the book I had read. Incredible book, Experiencing God. And this was a devotional that was titled, uh, Don't Avoid the Impossible. And it recounted the feeding of the 5,000, right? It's in all the Gospels. And in that story, there was a large crowd, once again gathered because Jesus was there. I mean, as far as I, I can tell, he had sent out some advanced scouts and they would gathered a crowd and he showed up and like there's this big outdoor rally going on, right? They, they gathered to hear, Jesus. about 5,000 and the scripture tells us like 5,000 men and their families. So it was much more than 5,000 people. It was 5,000 families. And as the gospel writer Mark, he records it at the time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said this. Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter six, verse 35 and 36 says, this is a remote place, they said. And it's already late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat out of our stores? And Jesus responded, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and, and and two fish. Now these would have been a very rough bread, barley loaf, and, and little salted fish, just little little things. It's not like they had a sea bass going on there, right? Little salted fish that they would put on the rolls and you know. Now, very interesting to note, no miracle seems to have made such an impact on the disciples as this one miracle. It's the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. Go ahead and take a look. The only one. This thing made an impact on them, and I think more than interesting, way past simply interesting, um, is that through the entire story runs this implicit comparison, contrast between the actions of Jesus, the the, whole, the the wholesome, beautiful actions of Jesus, and the rather faithless, pathetic reactions of the disciples. Right? We 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 see this like they're just compared. And and what I find really really wild is that all four of them included. The miracle that made them look the worst, right? They just they, they just look really not all together, and, and I think this is these guys as they write this later in their life. As writers, that's a picture of of an entirely sanctified person, right? An entirely sanctified person, when they realize they did something wrong, they don't go to reasons, they don't go to guilt, they don't go to shame, they don't go to hiding, they don't go to any of those places. They just offer it back to God, and God redeems it, and they move on. No fear, no worry, no condemnation. That's what being entirely sanctified is all about, right? So awesome thing, all right? So anyway, let's see. Uh, Very, very gutsy of them, right? Just just really honest of them to write this about themselves, right? Like, we're the losers in this story. But in their reactions versus Jesus' reactions, we see really two human reactions to human need, right? You're walking along the road. You're going up to Jerusalem, and there's a Samaritan on the side of the road. You don't really like him. He doesn't look like you. He's not... From your tribe, and you think there's some need. What do I do? And in and in this story of the feeding of the five thousand, we have two really clear reactions. One reaction is um, to reject responsibility. That's what several of the guys, the priests, the Levite, walking by the Samaritan, that they did in the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, literally, they say, "Let others worry about it. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough love." I'm not sure what they didn't have enough of, but we all tend to find enough of that that we don't have enough of, and we say that's not my responsibility. But there will be some people who say, I must worry about it. Now, maybe you've hung around people like that. They can drive you just a little bit batty because every time they see a need, they stop. We need to address that need. No, we were on our way to the store, honey. We No, <laughs> we need to stop. <laughs> oh, fine, fine. Right, I, got, I got a little daughter that was like that. Um wow, I just wanted to put blinders on her when we went through a crowd because she would see needs and she would get upset that we didn't stop and address those needs. And there are some people like that and they're beautiful people and we need to listen to them. And then the contrasting attitudes of Jesus and disciples illustrate also the two reactions that people have when they are faced with a shortage of resources to meet those needs, right? One crowd will say, hey, we don't have nearly enough. Right? Sorry, we, we just, we don't have enough. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough volunteers. We don't have enough contacts. We don't have enough organization. We don't have enough. But there will be some that says, yeah, we don't have enough, but with God, all things are possible. It'll just flow out of their mouth, right? They'll roll up their sleeves, and after counting what they have and giving Jesus time to count what right he has, and like, are we good to go? And he's like, yeah, okay, we got it. And, th- and then they go. They just, they just move forward. Right? They don't wait Until they've got everything and and they can count on their own righteousness. The one fatal thing to say is for as little as I could do, I might as well not try to do anything. If we put ourselves into the hand of Christ, there's no telling what he can do in us and through us. With his riches and his glory. And then after retelling the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Blackaby, you know, he hands this piece of paper to our pastor friend. And at the bottom of the retelling of the story, there's this phrase. It says, don't avoid the impossible. Christ will lead you into many situations that seem impossible, but don't try to avoid them. Stay in the middle of them, for that is where you will experience God. So the pastor brings the idea to his board. And they agree. (laughs) Pastor, this is ridiculous. This is impossible. But the board agreed that's what the church needed to do, and it's what they should do if they, number one, didn't want to reject responsibility, and number two, if they didn't want to say or claim that their God didn't have enough. Like that board decided, no, we can't go those two routes because both those routes are false. They're false. They're false. And as soon as they began to move forward, God began to open up the floodgates of heaven, right? The CEO of Honey Baked Hams, a a local mega producer of frozen foods, the local minor league baseball team opened up their... I mean, all these people in the community, they saw what the church was doing, and they're like, yeah, we want to help. We want to help. We've had resources ready all along, but we're just waiting for somebody, right? And then the invitations were sent out. Residents of Gwinnett County, if you're unemployed, listen very closely. This is the invitation, the actual invitation. Residents of Gwinnett County, if you're unemployed, we'd like to bless the first first 5,000 families that show up with a Christmas dinner and two weeks groceries. What they didn't know is that someone had rewritten the invitation. And they sent it to all the surrounding counties around Atlanta, Georgia, which happens to be a fairly large city. And they left out some crucial details. Here's the invitation that was sent out. We'd like to bless families with Christmas dinner and 2 weeks groceries. I don't know if that's exactly what it was said, but the essentially the message was free food was being given out at the stadium. And this rogue email, it went viral, right? It, it went to Alabama, it went to the Carolinas and people were driving in. Here's what it looked like that morning. They were excited right they had they had it set up to to um, like service like 20 some odd vehicles at a time they would have 20 lines of cars and they would be able to get them through in and out really quickly and but they would they couldn't see past their horizon and what had happened is they had shut down the interstate this is interstate 85 if you're from the south huge interstate shut it down entirely now worse <laughs> that wasn't the worst part right across the interstate is the mall of georgia uh, it, it, yeah, it's called the mall. It's the biggest mall in the state of Georgia. Um, it's the Saturday before Christmas, <laughs> and nobody can go to the mall. The mall they're calling, all these, these businesses are furious, right? They're ready to burn the church down. They're, they're just, like, this is their biggest money-making day of the year, and this church shut them down cold, Hit that next slide. Well, say it right, right there it is. I mean, there were, there were lines. Apparently, there were three-hour lines. Uh, people were running out of gas. They were abandoning their vehicles on the freeway. Uh, and again, from the Carolinas, from Alabama, I mean, everywhere. Now, <laughs> lay that all down for a moment. In our context, <laughs> I did something very similar at the last board meeting, and chaos reigned. I was excited I presented it to a few people in the body but they were kind of like me they were dreamers and they were like oh yeah that sounds wonderful they they weren't money people <laughs> Um, the problem is I didn't share it with the folks in the body tasked with financing pastors fantasies, right? And, and, and I should have told them, and, and there are a couple of individuals who in the meeting, they stood up and said, whoa, 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 hold on there, cowboy. And I, I'm very thankful that they did because they pointed out some things that in my excitement, I just, it, it, it slipped out. And to those people, I apologize. I, I, I apologize. Um, I remember talking with Dan afterwards. He said, Dan, he said, Jerry, you know, we've been, we've been discussing things and making sure we're on the same page, and you kind of went rogue with that one. And it's was like, yes, I know I did. And again, my, my apology. I still believe in what I presented to the board, but I think it's going to have to be a five-year plan maybe. We'll come back to that someday. So, so here's my question. Why do we put ourselves through all this? Why don't we just go it alone as individuals? Like, why the church? Why the body? Why all the meeting in the committees and making sure everybody agrees? Why don't we just, each as individuals, just go out and love people? Here's the reason. Because God asked us. We're his church, and, and that's what we do. Christians are not a scattered mass of disconnected individuals. That's not what Jesus had in mind. That wasn't the goal. Throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, for that matter, every time that we say yes to God, for example, in the Old Testament, we also say yes to we. And when we say yes to Jesus in the, Old, in the New Testament, we say yes to we, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, in its essence, it, it can be a one-on-one, an individual kind of thing, but it's never a private, it's personal, but not private. It, it, it involves a whole bunch of people. So again, when we say yes to Jesus, we also say yes to we in two different manners. One, we say yes to we in a Trinitarian manner, right? We're saying yes to God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Um, we are asking to join their community and God's word says that they invite us to join the, the perichoresis, perichoresis the, the dance, like the, the beautiful dance of the God, the Father, God, the Son, the God, the Holy Spirit, the way they, they perfect love with each other, like we join that union. So it's, it's always a we. It's always a we. And also in the, in the fact that we're, we're, when we say yes to Jesus, we also say yes to really a ragtag bunch of folks from all walks of life, all sitting under one roof, figuratively speaking, claiming that Jesus is king. And again, you you probably won't find anywhere in the world a more diverse group of people sitting regularly under roofs, all claiming one thing. It's pretty amazing, pretty amazing. And this is what baptism is all about. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's the individual joining the bride of Christ. And And that's what we are. That's what God's word calls us. The individual joining the bride of Christ and the mission given to the bride by the bridegroom. You've heard it said that you can't, you know, one another without going to church. I've, I've been told that since I was little. You can't, you, you got to go to church because it's the only way you can one another, you know, love one another, pray for one another, lift up one another. I, I would take it one step further. We're going to be reading from an epistle this morning. It's a, it's a letter. Um, and there are there are, there are a bunch of letters in the in the New Testament. There's about seven or eight of them that are to churches, and there's a handful that are to individuals, like Timothy and Titus. Um, and then there's a few at the end that are to like everybody, right? Like all of Christian kind of thing. But what I want to say is, when you're reading one of those letters that is written to a church, like the church at Corinth, you know First and Second Corinthians, or, or Ephesians, or Galatians, or Colossians, or, or not the Philippines, Philippians, um, Thessalonica, you know any of those letters that were written to a church. Here, here's my, yeah, you know, I'm feeling this. Primarily, and foremost, these letters are to be read in a gathering in front of it, with the body looking at each other the letters written to churches they can be read with your coffee mug and your little quiet spot in the morning you know that that's good and fine but first and foremost these letters to the churches they really ought to be read while you're looking across a table from that committee member that's been driving you batty right it's from that sunday school teacher who keeps calling you or from that superintendent or that person in the church that keeps saying it's These letters are not about your loud, rude neighbor. (laughs) These letters to the churches are about the person sitting next to you in the pew. Well, right now they might be sitting next to you on the couch. Don't point at them. These letters, they're, they're written to groups of individuals who have decided that they will act as one. One body, one spirit, one individual Listen to the words of Paul. It's a letter written to one local body of believers. It wasn't written to an individual. And again, you as an individual can read it as an individual, but first and foremost, understand in your mind that this is being written to a group of individuals who have committed themselves to the mission of Christ and abandoned together and decided that we will operate as one. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. Let me just, before I go any further, let me reiterate. This this letter can be read as a letter to the big C church, Christians everywhere in the world. And it can also be read carefully by an individual. But first and foremost, this letter was designed and written from the heart of a man who He's writing it to a group of people, Who have some issues who have some struggles and they need some information on how to act as one again it's not a message to individual it's a member to a group of individuals acting as as one rule of thumb in all of paul's letters to the churches when you see the word you if you had a greek book in front of you you would literally read all you all it's not just you it's not to an individual these letters are not to individuals they're to congregations So let me read this, and I'm going to try to read it as accurately as I can, taking this idea. As a prisoner from the Lord, then, I urge all you all to live a life worthy of the calling that all you all received. You didn't receive it as individuals. You received it as the body of Christ. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Again, people use this passage to talk about all the different churches and denominations. No, (laughs) this letter is being written to one church, and they're saying, hey, one church, one body, don't act like separate individuals. you got to have a bond. Just, Just you guys, just you right here in this church. That's what I'm addressing right now. I'm not addressing Christendom. One body in one city with one task to save that city for Jesus Verse 4 and 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you all, all you all, were called to one hope when all you all were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all you all and all that there is, who is in, who is over all you all and all there is, and through all you all and all there is, and in all you all and all there is. And the church, all you all, has a God-ordained mission to fulfill that was given to all you all. We didn't come up with the mission. It's not our mission. It's God's mission. That he first gave to Jesus, and then Jesus passed it on to us. Jesus passed it on to all of us local all you alls. Again, it wasn't a message to an individual believer. It can be read as that, but first and foremost was written to a group. Listen to the very words. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Here's the commission. Then Jesus came to them. Didn't come to an individual. Didn't come to Paul. Didn't come to Apollo. Didn't come to any, any individual. Came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And how does one go about making disciples? Well, it's right here in front of us right first of all you go right bless them with the kingdom so that they'll want to be a part of the kingdom then you baptize them into the kingdom train them about the kingdom realities and then you send them back out to extravagantly bless people with the kingdom and then to show the kingdom and then to explain the kingdom it's a circle it's a cycle in fact, the statement of the Church of the Nazarenes, right here. The mission of the Church of Nazarene is to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. While the primary motive of the church is to glorify God, we have been called as a part of that glorification of God to be a part of his mission, to reconcile the entire world to himself. In fact, you might even be able to say that that's our local mission, right? The mission of the local Church of the Nazarene is to make Christ-like disciples of Richland or the Tri-Cities, right? We, we could go there. It was not Jesus' plan to have individuals attempt this. I just want to make that really, really clear. It was for a lot of little groups of all you alls to go and attempt this. With all this in mind, let's look at Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. We read this earlier. Leanne read this for us, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 17 through 21. We're just going to kind of go, go through it very slowly here because it's just, it's just packed. It, it just Everything I wanted to say is screaming in this passage here. Again, this is read as instructions to individuals by many people. It uh, turns out that what Paul is writing is instructions to a group of people. One body, one local body of believers. One local body of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 13. If we're out of our minds, as some say, it is for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. Little background. Paul had been investing in these people. He had found persons of peace, and he was investing in them. And he was doing really two things out of love. One, he was extravagantly loving them, sacrificially, And the other one, he was out of love rebuking them, right? You know, kind of showing them, hey, here's where you're going wrong. And, and so they begin to question his motives, Right? He began to, you know, hey, why are you yelling at us at one point and you're trying to act all lovey dovey in the next thing? And, and, so, and so he's basically saying, look, if I was extravagantly crazy in love, it's because God is in me. And if I rebuked you, it was because you needed it. It, 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 just, it. That's just the way it is. And then he concludes, he says, for Christ's love compels us. That's the reason he rebuked, and that's the reason he sacrificially loved. The love of Christ compels him. And it's, it's us because he's writing to all y'all. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Again, in other words, one man died for everybody and that puts everybody into the same boat. It's a weird phrase. It kind of makes more sense as we continue the rest of verse 15. It says, and he died for all that those who live, now this is so crucial, those that do live should no longer live for themselves. That's the unsanctified believer. But for him who died for them and was raised again, that's the sanctified believer. In a nutshell, Jesus didn't die just to save you, the individual. He died to equip and empower the saved individual to join forces with the kingdom, right? And kingdom is a plural word. It's an all y'all word. Listen, unless we have a full understanding of this, this entire sanctification thing, we're gonna we're gonna we tend to boil it down to like the moral imperative behave, right? Behave. And that is not what holiness is all about, and that's not what entire sanctification is all about. It's about the idea that God created this beautiful world, it went wrong, and He loves us so much that He's gonna re, He's gonna recreate it. He's redeeming it. That's holiness. That's it's not just behave. Ah. Uh verse 16, so. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. Right? Because Christ died for everyone, everyone must be worth saving. Paul's literally telling the church, look, you've got some really gross neighbors out there. They don't know Jesus. They have all sorts of weird practices. But look, you, you were once like them. And if he died for you, he died for them too. He didn't just die for you. We once looked at Jesus as an ordinary man, is basically what Paul's saying. Maybe worth saving, maybe not, and look where that got us. We need to honor people. And then in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. First and foremost, this isn't a passage that looks inward and is self-satisfied. Oh, I'm a new creation. This passage is... It's screaming at church people to look outside the walls of the church and to love those people. If they've accepted Christ, they might not look very clean, but they are. And if Christ decided they're worth dying, then they're worth loving and dying for too. Paul continues to speak to the assembled local body of Christ. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, which is basically this, God reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. So we have this message of reconciliation, and we learn in chapters 8 through 10 of Luke um, what it might look like for the message of reconciliation, which, by the way, if you're not aware of it, is the gospel. It's the good news, right? Kind of connect all those things together. In, in Luke eight, nine, and ten, we, we, we Jesus showed us a picture of what it would look like if a couple buddies, right, just a couple friends, you know, maybe a husband and wife, you know, whatever. If they were to go out and and just on a Saturday afternoon, right? What, what that might look like as an individual. But in this Second Corinthians letter, we have what that might look like for a body of believers. So everything I'm about to read now, you, you really, we really need to read it as if there were a whole bunch of people sitting all around us and the speaker was speaking to us, not you as an individual, all right? Again, this letter, Paul's gonna paint a picture of what it might look like for a church present the gospel. Not not two by two, but, you know, 150. What, What might that look like? 150 people who have chosen to act as one body and one spirit. Chapter 20, verse 20, it says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. Now, without having to mispronounce and, and hack a whole bunch of Greek and Latin w- words, uh, we do need to better understand this word ambassador that Paul's using. Um, and there's actually two meanings, and he does lean into both meanings. And we kind of miss the second meaning. Uh, we we, we kind of latch on because we so read scripture individually. That's, that's just our culture. It's our, uh, the American way, very individualistic. Um, but he didn't write it as an individual. He, again, he's writing it to a group of people, so we need to understand it in that aspect. So let, let, me, let me just kind of break it down again. There's two meanings, one for the individual and one for the whole church. The word ambassador um, really has to do with uh, this idea that, that there were two kinds of Roman provinces in the Roman Empire, right? There was an imperial province and a senatorial province. Now, if you were a province that the Roman Empire had, had taken over, um, they would decide, okay, if you're peaceful... And if you're not making any trouble, you would become a senatorial province. No troops, no emperor's man over you. You, you can you can elect your own person. You can have your own church. You can do, you can do anything you want because you're peaceful. Just stay peaceful. But if you're like Judea or Galilee or Samaria or the, you know, the far end of the Mediterranean, the Holy Land, like it's chaotic, right? You're not going to get to be a senatorial province. You're going to get to be, you're going to be an imperial province, which means you have troops in your province and you have the the emperor's man, right? In 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 the New Testament, his name was Herod. He's the emperor's man, right? And he's there because y- y'all were troublemakers, right? You wouldn't behave. You wouldn't sit still and, and worship their God, right? You demanded that we would only worship the one true God. So you ended up being a, one of those. And so anyway, um, if you were a imperial colony, a troublemaking colony, um, and this is the word that Paul is using, the ambassador rules on behalf of the emperor. So he's really kind of equating himself with Herod. But where Herod is in conjunction with uh, the Roman emperor, Paul sees himself in conjunction with Christ the king, right? He's Christ's man. Not the emperor's man. He's, he's Christ's man. And again, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, right, we actually do represent in a very real way the very presence of the emperor, King Jesus, and Paul never let that stray from his mind, and neither should we. We are ambassadors as individuals, and that is absolutely true. But the second meaning is actually what Paul is driving at in this message, to one local body of Christ gathered to glorify God as one. And the second meaning is for the local. It's really this idea of it was a, a special envoy, this, this word ambassador. It was a group of ten. And once again, once that province had been taken over by the Roman Empire, what, what would happen is they would send ten people representatives, ambassadors of the emperor, and they would go into this province, and they would explain to this province, here's the way the Roman Empire works. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's what's going to get you into trouble. Here's what's going to give you victory. Here's what's going to, you know, here's the way the kingdom works, the empire works. Now, some groups, they're like, nah. (laughs) Well, we're going to send you troops and the emperor's man. So, you know, but other groups were like, yeah, man, being a part of the Roman Empire, that'd be great. That'd be, that'd be fantastic. And they, like, sign us up, sign us up right now. So they got to be senatorial um, provinces. Paul thinks that the church, and he sees the church as this local body, this, this, this little group of envoys sent on behalf of Jesus to go out into the community, to leave the church, go out into the community, explain the ways of God. God. Explain that he loves them and he doesn't want to punish them and he wants to save them. And some of them will reject. But the ones that do, we invite them into the kingdom. I think that's the more accurate picture. It's a a group of 10 people or 150 people who who leave the kingdom or their comfort. And they go out into the newly (coughs) conquered, this place that finally got the news they present that's what we do that's what we get to do and then paul concludes his remarks to them and us we implore you therefore because we have such a task we implore you on christ's behalf be reconciled to god because if you are not reconciled to god you are going to be an anchor in our effort to love this community so paul is saying look you all in the body you all need to be all in You can't have a few of you who are just partially in. It'll just, it'll pull us all down. All of you need to be all in. And if you're all in, God's saying, I'm all in too. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, that's so crucial. In him, we might become the righteousness of God because if we are not in him, then we're counting on our righteousness. But if, we're, if if he is in us and we're in him, then it's his righteousness doing the job. We just got the feet and the hands doing the mobility, but it's his power in us. Don't let it be your own righteousness. Be reconciled to God. So let's conclude the message in this series with a final question. Seek God's God's heart. Um, What if Richland Church of the Nazarene is his plan to proclaim the good news, to proclaim freedom, recovery of sight, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? And what would it take to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Richland, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, and the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Have you ever experienced someone yelling, hey you, hey you, hey you, and, and you think, they can't be yelling at me. <laughs> so so you, you, you kind of do one of these and then you realize there's no one behind you. and Who, who Me? I think that's what's going on here. God is like, hey, 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 Richland. Man, I, if I got something good for you, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna amaze you. I'm gonna complete your joy. Oh, my, 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 what I'm gonna do for you. Hey, hey, you, hey, you. And, and don't let us be. You, you talking to Bethel? Who, who, you, you, you talking to C3? Uh-huh. No, he's talking to us. He's talking to you. Let's bow our heads. Father, you are, you are speaking to us. We have a message that Richard needs to hear. A message of victory that we can can live victorious lives and you're not a big meanie. Father, we have the message. And Father, we have the power through your spirit. And we have redeemed lives by the blood of your son. There's nothing that we are lacking, Father. We have more than enough. And when we're filled, you fill us. Father, give us courage. Help us to step out into the impossible so that we can see you. Thank you, Father. Your sons name, I might pray. Amen.